It is a great privilege up here to be sharing the Word of God this morning, so why don't I pray and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you for the precious gift that it is to us. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to preach in accordance with your Holy Spirit for your glory this morning. Please give us hearts and minds that are humble and willing to receive your truth and to submit to it. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have a little bit of a story to get started with this morning. It was a, a man who was, unfortunately for him, placed in a mental asylum because he claimed to be Napoleon Bonaparte. A young doctor, new on the ward, moves from one patient's bed to the next and sits down next to the man claiming to be the great French general. He begins to try to reason with him about his delusion. He says, it says here on your birth certificate that you were born in Manchester in 1954, but Napoleon was born in 1769 in Corsica, in Italy. How do you explain that? I'm Napoleon, the man replied confidently. Napoleon could speak French and Italian, but you appear to have no grasp of these languages. How do you explain that? I'm Napoleon, the man replied just as confidently. Napoleon led armies across all of Europe, but according to your passport, you've never left England. How is that possible? I'm Napoleon, the man replied, just as confident as ever. If you haven't done any of these things, then how can you possibly believe that you are Napoleon? asked the young doctor, a little flummoxed. At this, the man smiled and happily said to the doctor, because Jesus told me. At this, the man in the bed next to him, aghast and furious at his response, stood up and said, I did not! <laughs> it's good, right? It's humorous, but it underlies uh, my point for this morning. If you're, going to be, if you're going to claim to be someone, there are certain things that confirm whether you are telling the truth. I cannot claim to be Napoleon, uh, not the fact that I've got you know, six inches on him, uh, but there are other things that he did that I can't claim uh, to have done. When Jesus came, there were many expectations as to what the Messiah would do when he arrived. Uh, some were right, some were wrong, some were misunderstood. Matthew, in his gospel, is writing to explain to us the claim that Jesus was the Christ. But it wasn't universally accepted when he was writing. In fact, it was argued against and mocked by different parties at the time. The Jewish religious leaders claimed that Jesus was a magician who had gone to Egypt to learn his trade. He was meant to be a deceiver from the devil who was tricking the people. Uh, the Roman authorities mocked the idea of a common man who claimed to be God. Uh, there's a picture, uh, of a famous picture of Roman graffiti where it's a, a man's body being crucified, but it's the head of a donkey. And it says, Alex Menos worships his God. You know, it, this was a, a mocked and ridiculed idea that Jesus could have been the Christ. And the truth is that it still seems to many of us today like somewhat of an incredible claim, in the literal sense, not credible. It's an idea that's still mocked from academic halls right through to popular fiction, from Dawkins to Dan Brown. Consider this quote from Richard Dawkins. The evidence points to the Jesus Christ of the New Testament as a fictional composite of characters, real and mythical. A composite of multiple people is no one. And he continues on. What the composers of the New Testament have done is cherry-picked ancient ideas, 
and rework them to revolve around a fictional character in order to further their agenda. What is Dawkins saying? He's saying that Jesus is not the Son of God. He's a fictional character made up by the Gospel writers. This morning, we're going to see how Matthew wants to use the early years of Jesus' life to testify the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, So please open your Bibles this point, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 2. At the very start of this chapter, uh, Matthew is going to give us a context and a geography uh, for the events that are going to take place. And he also wants to introduce us to several characters. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a town about two hours' walk south of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem was the capital city of Judea, and at the time, the ruler was a man by the name of King Herod, known as Herod the Great. Herod was a cunning, ruthless, and successful political ruler. He reigned for the 40 or so years up until Jesus' time, and he was famous for building the temple that stood during Jesus' day. When, you know, so when Jesus later goes and, and uh, you know, turns over the tables in the temple, that's Herod's temple. That's the one that he built. But he was, Herod himself was only half-Jewish. And he was not a particularly moral man. In order to maintain his position as ruler, he relied upon the support of the hated Roman government. He killed off many of his own family members, including his own sons, to maintain his power. So he's not a great guy. But also in this opening verse, we're introduced to another uh, group of characters called the Magi. Sometimes called wise men, They are most likely astrologers, observers of patterns in the stars. They probably came from somewhere in Persia to the east of Judea. And Matthew was clear to explain to us the purpose of the Magi's visit or their journey. They have come to Jerusalem in order to find the one who is to be the king of the Jews. This title is a reminder for us who've read chapter 1 of Jesus' royal lineage. The Magi have arrived in Jerusalem by following a star that they saw in the east when they were in their homeland, far away from Jerusalem. Matthew is telling us that it was non-Jewish foreigners who followed a sign from the heavens that announced the arrival of the king of the Jews to the people of Jerusalem. And their response, the Magi's response to this sign from God is a desire to worship this infant child. Uh, You can follow along in verse 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, Matthew reveals to us that this is kind of a big deal, this news that the Magi bring. Clearly, Herod is troubled by this news. Uh, A little context. The first part of Herod's reign was marked uh, by him having to fight off claimants who were trying to usurp his throne. They were trying to take the rule of Judea away from him. And at the time of Jesus' birth, he was in the midst of rewriting his will six different times to try and shore up his succession plan. A A new messianic claimant to the throne was not exactly what Herod was looking for. The people of Jerusalem, though, also knew that this was trouble. Understanding the political climate, knowing what was going on with Herod, they understood that this could be dangerous for them too. In order to find out about the possible rival, Herod turns to the priests and teachers of the law. He wants to try and determine where exactly is this Messiah meant to be born. Let's read in verse 3 and 4. 
When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Now the chief priests and teachers are clear in their response that Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. This is in fulfillment of a prophecy given in the Old Testament book of Micah. Now this is the first of four prophecies that Matthew is going to say is fulfilled in Jesus' early childhood. Now this was a passage, from the passage from Micah, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, was clearly seen as a messianic text. It's in your outline if you want to have a look at it. Let's just read it. Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So, why is Matthew bringing this up? Why is the birthplace of Jesus significant? It's because one of the objections that would be later raised by Jewish people against the idea that Jesus was the Christ is that he was from Galilee, not Bethlehem. And you can read about that at the end of John chapter 7. Just like the doctor raising objections to the mental patient's claim to be Napoleon, so the religious leaders would oppose Jesus' claim to be the Messiah because he did not match the criteria. And Matthew seems to be on some level responding to that sort of opposition. So let's uh, read verse 5 and 6 and you'll get how Matthew uses it in prophecy here. In Bethlehem in Judah, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Now I mentioned earlier that Herod was a cunning ruler and he shows some of his political ability here. He tricks the Magi into revealing when the star first appeared under the pretense that he too may go and worship the infant child. Uh, He sends them on their way, apparently, with his blessing, but clearly we can start to get the sense that Herod is up to something. Verse 7 and 8. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. I don't know about you, but every time I picture Harry, he's got like a crooked nose, he's villainous, and he's just a bad guy, he just oozes that. So the star that led the Magi to Jerusalem now guides them again to Bethlehem. This confirms what they received throughout Scripture about Bethlehem from Herod. So we've got a sign from the heavens, but more importantly, we've got Scripture telling us where this child is to be born. Now they are overjoyed that the star has led them to this baby. It was a long journey that they had made. And you can imagine their relief upon finally arriving at their destination. One must have some doubts following a star far from your own homeland as to when you're going to reach the end of your journey and what you'll find when you get there. Um, All their effort, their time, their sacrifice to follow the star had finally brought them to the child they had sought. And they fulfilled their plan to worship him by bowing down and presenting him with gifts of gold, incense, and myrrh. It's Christmas. God's providential guidance of the story is seen again. He warns the Magi, though, in a dream to not return to Herod, and they flee from him by going home via a different direction. Verses 9 to 12. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. 
On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned, warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So this sort of marks the end of the first half of the chapter, and we can see that really it's what's been happening with the Magi that's been moving our story forward. But now the focus is going to shift. As they return to their homeland, we're going to come back to Joseph. So Joseph is going to receive a dream. It's actually the second dream. We learnt last week that at the end of chapter 1, he received a dream as to what to do with Mary when she was found to be with child and they weren't yet married. So it's the start of the second half of this chapter, but it's really the second dream that God is giving to Joseph. So he receives the second dream and he's told with urgency to flee with Mary and Jesus to Egypt. They are to remain there until God sends word because Herod is seeking to kill Jesus. Verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Joseph is obedient, as he was in chapter 1, to the command from God and does as he is told. Now, Matthew interprets this in an interesting way. He sees this fleeing into Egypt as the fulfillment of another prophecy. But to understand it, it's important that we understand how the New Testament fulfillment of prophecy works. It's not always about Old Testament prediction about future events. Said future event happens, prophecy fulfilled. It's not quite as simple as that. Sometimes events that occurred in the Old Testament are what we call types, examples of something that is to come, foreshadowing of events that will take place. So they're not predictions as such. It's not saying this will happen at this time, but rather something happens in history and it's a picture that we can look back on. And it wasn't always obvious at the time when the Old Testament records were being written that that's what was taking place. But thanks to the coming of the Christ and the New Testament, the new revelation that we've been given by God, we can understand these historical events as types, as foreshadowing. So this is just such an example. Matthew quotes from Hosea 11.1, 1, which again is in your outline at a second fulfillment. It said, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So originally, this was not seen as a prophecy about the Messiah. Rather, it was simply a statement of fact about what God had done in the history of Israel. It's God saying, I loved Israel and I called him out of Egypt. There's nothing particularly messianic about that, at least not in the context that it was originally given. But Matthew is making the point that just as God's people, Israel, were led into Egypt and out again by the sovereign hand of God, so too Jesus, God's son, is being led into Egypt and will be led back out again. It's the history of God's children being repeated by God's son. Jesus did not go into Egypt to learn the magician's trade, as the Jewish religious leaders would later accuse him, but rather it was to paint a picture of how he would be the fulfillment of the history of the people of God. I think it's far richer than just the idea of prophecy, event, fulfillment. It's, it's, God works on a much more poetic, grand scale. It's something to rejoice in. So verse 14. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt 
I called my son. Here, the story takes quite a dark twist. Herod, when he discovered that he has been tricked by the Magi, is enraged. He's furious. He acts in what is a brutal and shocking manner. We, the reader, get, can understand just how much danger Jesus is in and how much of an extreme situation it was that Joseph had to negotiate on the infant king's behalf. There should be a sense here that you fear just how tenuous this infant baby saviour messiah's life you know the tension that it was the tension that he was the, the tension of the situation that he was in herod commands that every male child under two years old in bethlehem is to be killed not just bethlehem indeed every male child in the region it's the sort of atrocity that should be very raw for us in light of the shootings in newtown connecticut We've had a very modern picture of what that sort of slaughter would look like in a community. And it's worth us noting that this is the way that the powers of the world responded to the birth of the Messiah. They reject him, are jealous of him, and their attempts to destroy him harm many others. Let's let the text speak. Verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. While well, the tragedy of this is not lost on Matthew, he interprets it as another sign as to who Jesus is, as testified to by the Old Testament. This time Matthew quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31. Specifically, verse 15. Uh, let's read it in Matthew's text first, in verses 17 and 18. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The picture given is a poetic one. Even when this, pattern, this passage was originally written, Rachel had died many years earlier centuries before the events that were being described. So it's poetic language where she is being portrayed as the mother of the tribe of Benjamin, lamenting the destruction and exile of her descendants. So this passage, again, is not a direct prediction about the slaughter of the children that Herod would command. Instead, what we have here is a picture of hope coming out of a time of despair. You see, the passage that Matthew quotes in Jeremiah 31 is the only note of despair in the entire chapter. We can see this by just reading the next couple of verses, which are in your outline. Jeremiah 31, 16 and 17, directly following what we just read. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. It's hopeful, and the rest of the chapter is full of the same sort of language. So Matthew's point is that God has declared in the Old Testament that this hope will come at a time of despair and loss. And this is exactly what happens with the arrival of Jesus. He is the hope of the world, arriving amidst pain and despair. 
He's fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy. Now, just as God promised, he speaks again to Joseph upon the death of Herod. In another dream, he tells him to return to Israel as the ones trying to kill Jesus are themselves dead. And as he has done each time, Joseph responds in obedience to the vision that he receives from the Lord. Verse 19 to 21. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up. Every time. Get up. Move. Go. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. Good news, right? But when they get to Jerusalem, uh, Joseph discovers that, is that sorry, Herod's son Archelaus is reigning in his father's place. Now, if you stop and think, considering the number of wills that Herod had written and the unstable grasp that Archelaus has on the throne, you can understand why Joseph may be a little bit reluctant to head back into Archelaus' territory. Uh, so he must have been relieved when God visited him, visited him in yet another dream and directed him to the semi-Jewish territory of Galilee, to the north, specifically to a town called Nazareth. And Matthew informs us that, again, this is to fill what the prophets have said about the Messiah. Now, the tricky thing is, though, about this last prophecy in the chapter is that nobody can actually find it in the Old Testament. Uh, if, you were looking, if you were listening during kids' time, uh, Ted, our friend there, made reference to the fact that, you know, the Old Testament doesn't say that. And he's right. It's not there. But uh, let me read it, and then let's try and see if we can nut this one out as well. So verse 22 and 23. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. So what do we make of this? A prophecy being fulfilled that isn't even in the Old Testament. Well, I think that the clue to the best understanding of this prophecy prophecy, is in the fact that on each of the previous occasions of fulfillment, Matthew refers to a quote from the prophet. Singular. This time, however, he says the prophets. Plural. Matthew is aware that he's not quoting a direct passage from the Old Testament. Rather, it's like that great Australian film, The Castle. It's Marbo. It's the vibe. <laughs> Let me explain. A Nazarene in Jesus' day was looked down upon. Nazareth was in Galilee uh, of the Gentiles, and the Jewish people of the time looked upon Galilee, the region, as basically a collection of half-breeds. You know, they, they were part Jewish, but their blood was mixed in with others. They weren't pure. A Nazarene, was, a Nazarene was despised for this reason. Matthew's point, I think, is that this makes sense. As in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that Messiah would not be one who was immediately glorified, but rather he would come as one who was looked down upon. Perhaps most famously, Isaiah 53, 3, which is again in your outline. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Now, we can't know for certain that this is the specific text that Matthew had in mind, but it's definitely giving us a picture of what the Old Testament said about the Messiah. He would come and he would be despised. And also we can know for sure that this Matthew was using this to communicate to the original hearers that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, even in his young life. Matthew's got a lot more material to come, but in this point, in this chapter, the point he's making is that his young life, the events surrounding Jesus' birth, and even when he was a young child, testify to the fact that he is the Christ. So what do we have? We have, according to the Magi, the fact that he was the king of the Jews. He is to be worshipped by the nations. It's not just the Jews who are worshipping him. In fact, they're not worshipping him in him at all at this point. The only ones who have worshipped him have been Gentiles, non-Jewish people. He has humble origins and will be despised, Isaiah 53.3. But he is the promised one. He's the fulfillment of the people of God's history, Hosea 11. And he has the right details. He's born in the right town, despite what the Jewish leaders may have accused him of. So Jesus, all the events of his young life are matching up to the fact that he is the Christ. Uh, Jeff spoke a couple of weeks ago about how our family defines us and provides us with identity. And we, and we saw how the genealogies of Jesus do that. But it's not just our family. It's not just nature, if you like. It's nurture as well. It's the events of his life that Matthew is now referring to as testimony, as evidence as to who he is. Even when the infant Jesus was like a piece of luggage, really, in the story. I mean, he's just being carted from one place to another by Joseph and Mary. And yet, even as he is somewhat passive, the human side of Jesus at this point, he is still being shown to be the Son of God by the sovereign hand of God. Look at the dreams. Look at the movement. Look at everything that God is doing. Look at the danger that he's in. And yet God is working all things to testify that he is the Christ. We should have no doubts about who Jesus is. And I think that's really the takeaway that we should be having in the midst of our modern context. Jesus is the promised one. He is the Messiah. The claim of Jesus to be the Christ is not like the man in a psychiatric ward claiming to be Napoleon. If I was to meet that man and he would suggest to me that we form an army and storm across Europe hoping to regain the glory of France, I would not be so keen to lay down my life in support of that man. But, The claim of Jesus to be the Christ is something that I'm willing to lay down my life for. What Matthew is establishing for us is that because of what he's done, we can have confidence in who he is. As we work through this gospel, as we're doing all of this year, I want you to listen and hear the rest of the promises and teachings of Jesus in light of the fact that you can have confidence that he is the Christ. The arguments of the Jewish leaders of his time, the Roman mockery, the vitriol that we see of the likes of Dawkins and the fictions of Dan Brown, these can all in one way or another try to shake our confidence in this truth. And some of you more legally minded uh, people among me might respond to the evidence I've pointed today and say, isn't this just a circumstantial case? Couldn't Dawkins be right? Aren't these just bits and pieces? You know, this whole idea of types and shadow and all that sort of stuff. Isn't that something that you could just artificially construct? Maybe. But that's not all we have. 
That's not how the story ends. We have to look at all this as the body of work and what we have that testifies to the Christ, that testifies these claims above everything else, not just his virgin birth, not just the genealogies, his royal descent, not just the events of his young life, the sovereign hand of God moving in one way or another, but we have the resurrection of Christ to point to, which our faith can stand firm upon. We know how this story ends, but Matthew wants us to see right from the beginning that we can trust that Jesus is the Christ. So when your friends and family question your sanity, suggest that maybe you should be the one in a mental asylum for believing in the claims of Christ, you can stand upon the testimony of Scripture. When your co-workers smirk at your simple faith, and when that gets you down, you can know in your heart for certain that Jesus is the Christ. In those moments when it all just seems so strange and so weird that God would work to use some backwater hick from a semi-Jewish town 2,000 years ago to become the son of God, the prince of peace, you can stand firm knowing that Jesus is the Christ. Our faith in our salvation, our faith in the blessings promised to us, our heavenly future, these are all promises that find their yes and amen in Christ. And because of everything that God has done, we can have complete confidence that Jesus is him. Lord, thank you so much that you have spoken to us through your word that Jesus is the Christ. Thank you so much, Father, that we can have confidence in our faith because of the evidence that you have given us, because of the testimony of Matthew, because of the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember this in those times when we feel conflicted or confused by the accusations and mockery of the world. And I pray, Father, that we would stand firm and live for your glory. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.